0: Have we got a show for you? I've no idea what we'll do. Welcome, my friends, to this charming tableau.
1: Have we got a show for you? Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Strangely and Friends, the podcast. I am the eponymous Strangely, and this is the podcast. You'll be hearing from one of the friends a little later. So, I saw the trailer for Netflix's Dark Crystal prequel, and it looks like more Dark Crystal. There, I've commented on something in the current zeitgeist, now let us speak of it no more. I'm (laughs) really excited about this week's episode. I'm actually on the road right now, if you can call me being down at a friend's house in Seattle on the road. So, if the audio is a little bit different this week, that is why. I've got a great chat with a friend coming up a little bit later in the show, but for now, let's move on to our first segment. Strangely recommends in 200 words or less, including these 11.
0: Who? Who imposed this rule? Wait, does, does this side count? Fiddlesticks.
1: sticks. Takis. Oh my goodness. Have you tried Takis? Like, if you have not, what are you waiting for? Order a bag on Amazon. Takis are produced by Barcell, itself a subsidiary of Grupo Bimbo, a company based in the state of Lerma, Mexico, and they are delicious. By the way, they're not paying me to recommend their glorious spicy joy tubes, I just love the thing so much. (laughs) There are so many commercially available products, see Flamin' Hot Cheetos or whatever Taco Bell is hawking, that claim to be spicy, so often they're just nodding in the direction of spice. 76 words left. Here's my current favorite three ways to eat Takis. One, with my hands out of the bag. Two, as an additional crunch joy factor in a homemade burrito. Three, out of the bag without my hands. I've only used 186 words, so here's the sound of me opening a bag of Takis. I'm going on break.
0: Do you hate it when people
1: eat on podcasts? So I am sitting here with my dear friend Ariel Schmidke, who is a aerialist, show director, show writer. You also make shadow puppets. Can you, for the listeners at home who have not had the benefit of knowing you, for we calculated it was 13 years last night, can you describe sort of your artistic, li- like what you do artistically?
2: Um, (laughs) I don't know. I don't really even know how to explain that to myself most of the time. Um, I have been leaning more towards saying I am a show director and creator, um, because though I do still perform, I feel like the thing I take the most enjoyment from is, writing full-length performance pieces that are a mixture of theater and circus and puppetry and dance um, That kind of all revolve around some sort of narrative arc usually music driven from um, an album that I enjoy Uh, and then I put all those pieces together and Make a show and usually perform it either by myself or with other people
1: so Your process, which I've gotten to watch happen several times, where you find the music first Mm -hmm. and then make the show, I feel like that is in some ways different than a lot of the people in our community who kind of have an act or a show idea already building and then go find some music that sort of slots in or they get somebody to play live music. What about the music first approach do you like? Like, Why is that compelling to you?
2: yeah I feel like that's kind of the like chicken or the egg question or with musicians like do you write a piece of music first or do you come at it with the lyrics first Mm -hmm. people often ask performers do you come up with your choreography first or and then set it to music or do you find music and then create your choreography around that and I am always the latter um I think that For me, movement and emotion for a piece has to be sourced from what I'm listening to. Um, And I really like that collaboration between using another artist's work as well and creating a visual aspect to it. Um, So yeah, all of my work, I've started with something I've listened to and something that's felt particularly evocative and then drawn from that to create something to go alongside it.
1: So is it like... Are you, are you seeking out music that you think might fit the kind of work you want to create? Or is it just sort of like you're driving along in your truck listening to KEXP and you hear something and you're like, ooh, maybe this?
2: Um, I mean, I think it's mostly hearing things. Uh, Esther, who is my primary performance partner, uh, we actually kind of forged our friendship by the fact that one time we went to a show together and I happened to have... Joanna Newsom's ease that I was carrying around with me because I had just bought it at a record store. And she looked at it and she was like, Oh, I've always wanted to create a performance based off of that. And I was like, Me too. And then we were like, Okay, let's make this. And then it took about ten more years. <laughs> but then we finally came back and I was like, Esther, we're never gonna be living in the same place long enough to make this performance. Let's do an artist residency, and let's take this piece of music, and let's write a show to it.
1: <laughs> the name of that album... I I am inclined to go with your pronunciation now, as Ys. Uh, I just had a conversation with my bandmates in Hell in America about this, and we were, <laughs> we were talking about that album, and I told them that like when I first saw it, I thought it was pronounced Wise,
2: mm-hmm. which... I mean, both have the play on words. Yeah. wise or E's.
1: <laughs> One of my bandmates was, like, very insistent that it was pronounced, like... Yeesh. Yeesh. Which, is that, like... Is there, like, a... Like a is there, like, a rift in the Joanna Newsom fan community that some people are, like, it shall be pronounced this way?
2: I don't know. I know... About 100% that is pronounced Ys, because Mm -hmm. it's based on the mythological French city of Ys. And that is how the French pronounce it, because I've been to the city that is bordering where the sunken city is supposedly supposed to have been.
1: That sunken city, is is that like an Atlantis thing? Like a French, is it like French Atlantis?
2: Yeah, it's a really good story. Have you heard of it? No, I've
1: never, I've never heard that. I've listened to the album, but I've not like dug deeper on the story. What is the story of Ys?
2: Um, so it is very Atlantis-based. Um, there was... And I might get the pronunciations of these names wrong, but there was a king, King Granlund, because um, this is all from Brittany, so it's the old Breton language. Um, and he had a daughter, Daout, uh, and she was very lascivious, and he would try to hide that from their subjects, but... Um, at night, she would take home lovers who came came to the kingdom. Um, but when she was making love to them, she would make them wear this mask. And then in the middle of the night, as they were sleeping, the mask would close on them and suffocate them to death.
1: Oh my God. It's like the worst goosebumps ever.
2: Um, and then in the middle of the night, she would take them and throw them off the cliff into the waves. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one day... Uh, Ryder comes to town and she is immediately completely taken with him Um, and she takes him to bed and he tells her that he doesn't want to wear the mask so because she loves him so much she doesn't make him wear the mask but then he turns on her because he wants the keys to the city Mm -hmm. which her father wears around his neck and the entire city is a walled city there's only one gate um, and that protects it from... The high tide, which would inundate the city if they were to be opened. And so, because she'll do anything for this new person, she goes to her father's sleeping chamber and takes the keys and then gives them to this rider. And in the middle of the night, he reveal- reveals himself to be the devil. And then he goes and opens the keys in the middle of a raging storm, mm-hmm. and the entire city is taken over by water. And her father caring so much about her tries to save her by riding over the waves on his like magical horse. Uh, but the horse keeps on sinking and keeps on sinking. And then all these other angels or something come out and they're like, leave her behind, leave the sinning daughter behind. And so he finally, uh, drops his daughter into the waves and then the horse is able to gallop across the water and escape, and then he goes and takes up in Camper, another city in France, and oh my that God. is the story.
1: That is... Wow. It's like a very French Atlantis. Yeah. Still, it's like... There has to be some lasciviousness in there somewhere. And yet, the the show that you end up making, like, I mean, that is the album, was that the album that you had pulled from? Yeah,
2: and I mean, our show isn't, I don't don't think the album has that much that goes along with the actual mythological story, more the idea of, like, searching for the sunken city, but Mm -hmm. not necessarily the story of the city of East as it was when it was above water.
1: Right. But that's still, it's like this idea of, like, That informs Joanna Newsom, Mm -hmm. and Joanna Newsom's, like, exploration of that informs you and (laughs) Esther wearing, like, bear and monkey costumes Uh in this, uh, like, circus show.
2: I mean, really, those are just the masks that's going to strangle us when we wake up from this ridiculous dream.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, hearing the two of you talk about wearing fake fur while doing... Incredibly physically active things, like it was almost a massive strength. Yeah. You. But you don't make your living doing circus stuff. Like, wh- you've also worked in education, mm-hmm. and that comes from, like, why do you work? What is the connection there for you? Because it seems so different to be like going to a school, working with kids. Uh, particularly, I know you like to work with sort of like underprivileged communities and things like that. Is there a connection between those two things for you?
2: I don't think there's entirely a connection. I think at some point in my life I would love for there to be a connection. Um, I mean, I'm interested in education because I think that we need to be giving youth opportunity so they can become great people and try to fix all of the things that we've kind of made a mess of in this generation. Um, And I think that so many of the kids i worked with are already changing the way they think and are so much more open-minded than many other generations. And I think that they show a lot of potential. Um, And I think maybe the closest place where I can tie them together is that, like, what I am searching for in performance is this idea of, like, giving people a voice and a way to express their feelings and what they're going through. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I have done some performance work with kids in which like I have talked a lot about how performance isn't just like this way to get attention it's a way to share what you've been trying to say and it's this moment in life where all the attention is in fact focused on you and it's supposed to be focused on you and not necessarily in a self-centered like I want everyone's attention sort of way but I have something important to say and I need people to listen in this moment Um, and so I think that is like the grander vision for how those two things might be connected but in general I just enjoy working with kids and getting to see all of their amazing ideas and the things that they're capable of doing
1: I, I think culturally like we're taught to value clarity of speech or writing sort of as being more intellectually valuable than say dance or painting or something like that. There's this idea that words on the printed page or spoken are the, mo- like the, that's where true clarity comes from. And I like hearing you talk about this idea of finding a voice when almost every performing thing I've seen you do has no text, no words, Even the story is sometimes difficult for an audience to follow because it's all in this like physical space where it's the emotion is communicated through how your body moves and interacts with things like juggling props or trapeze or whatever. And so to hear you talk about wanting to give voice to kids or sort of people who don't have a voice and the kind of work that you're making is this sort of unvoiced thing it's it's such a cool idea to think about like sort of f- exploring the spaces where people are speaking without speaking yeah and even like getting a wider play for someone else's voice by using Joanna Newsom's music you're sharing her music I think oftentimes with audiences that are not aware of her I, I remember being on the length of rope tour with you and just like a lot of the places that we played i don't think joanna newsome was high in most people's playlists she's kind of this odd thing musically that's somewhere sort of between almost like slam poetry and music Mm -hmm. in a way like her voice is just goes all over the place are there other albums besides east by joanna newsome that you just like you're kind of they're kicking around in your brain and you want to sort of Move to them performatively.
2: Yeah, I mean, right now the big one is Esther and I are working on a new project for uh, late summer, early fall. Um, and we both have really, really been enjoying this album by a woman named Haley Hendricks. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's a Portland based singer who has uh, just one album called I Need to Start a Garden. Um, and it's this really, really lovely album that, like, my main takeaway from it is kind of this idea that things are ephemeral and you can have them for some short amount of time and then they're gone, but that their importance Mm -hmm. isn't based off of how long you had them. And I think that that's a really beautiful metaphor for performance itself because performance is one of the few forms of art that, you can't ever have a physical copy of. Um, Even, like, filmed replication, you know, it's not the same thing as sitting in a room watching a performance. And that performance, even if you go to it multiple times, will never be entirely the same. Uh, Especially in circus performance, where tricks are so challenging that the likelihood of making a mistake and not being able to repeat it exactly is super high. Um, So I felt like that album just paired really well with the idea of what we're creating in general. We're creating this shared moment that doesn't last outside the runtime of the show yet you can hold those moments in a memory for a really long time and like be entirely changed by a particular performance.
1: I can't remember where I read this quote but it's something about circus is memory made physical or something like that it's something to that effect because like even the way like a circus arrives and performs and everything like that it's just it, it is it's, it's even more ephemeral than something like theater because like in a traditional theater there's a building and with a circus like this thing just kind of appears either in a field or maybe in a building but the building isn't purpose built for that especially a lot of the circus that we did when we were younger and still do. It's these sort of converted warehouses or, you know, old, uh, factory spaces or something like that. By the way, I know you just got a grant for the new show. Congratulations. What is the grant? I'm curious about that.
2: Uh, it is from for culture. Esther was the one who applied for this, um, So she knows more about it than I do. They're a King County based, relatively large granting organization. Like I think this year there were 80 recipients Mm -hmm. of various amounts of money. Um, it's a project based grant. So you didn't just get one specific amount of money. You had to create a budget Mm -hmm. and then base what you needed off of that. Um, but yeah, we, it's, a project grant to work on a new show.
1: That's so cool. And the, this arts organization, like, are they specifically trying to just make more art happen or do they have like a particular mission of types of art?
2: Um, I don't actually know because Esther did most of the work for this grant. Mm -hmm. Um, I think they give grants to many different people because it's more culture based than just arts. So I Mm -hmm. think it's, pretty widespread what they do
1: that's so cool though it's it's always exciting to hear about a fellow north american particularly american artist getting a grant because there just aren't nearly as many grants and arts funding and things like that as there are in say europe or australia where a lot of our friends work Mm That it's you know like in some of these places just being an artist you almost get like a stipend right and you know because art is so subjective it's sort of like you just say you are, and then you are, sort of. I guess that's actually how both of us became artists. We just woke up one morning, and we're like, <laughs> I shall do this thing. I, I I wanted to ask about one other thing. Uh, you read a lot of books, as do I, and you make circus. What are your favorite books about circus, like, that you have read about performing and maybe not just circus, but like performing the types of performing that we do. Are there books that you would specifically recommend?
2: Oh man, I hate almost all of the books written about circus that are fictional. Really? Yeah.
1: Because I hate Water for Elephants so much. And it actually turned me off from reading books about circus in general. But why do you hate them?
2: I think they're just cheesy. And they're about like a circus that is totally a different representation than the type of circus I do. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's not even that. It's just, like, they're not interesting to me because that type of circus isn't what I'm particularly interested in. But, like, people will give me a circus book being like, you love circus! I'm like, yeah, this story doesn't, like, really captivate me very much. Um, So, yeah. I can say the one... It's not necessarily a book. I mean, I have the um, the written-down play of it, uh-huh. but Lily Tomlin uh, has a show she does called The Search for Signs of Intelligent Life in the Universe. Uh-huh. And that's kind of this performance that's all about the idea of performance. Uh-huh. Um, and I think that is what has been one of the most inspirational pieces for me with being a performance creator. Um, There is a scene at the end of the book where one of her characters is this homeless woman, and she ends up escorting these aliens all around Earth and taking them to various things to try and give them the experience of Earth, and they all go to a play together. Uh And she... Is watching the play but at one point she notices that the aliens are just watching the people and throughout the whole play she's been making this comment about she holds up a can of soup that she found in the gutter and she's like art soup art soup asking the question you're based on Andy Warhol like right. what is art at the end of her play she ends with asking the aliens like why were you watching the audience the whole time and they said, and this is paraphrasing, not exact, but to watch a group of people sitting in the same room laughing and crying over the same thing, uh-huh. uh, huh the play was soup, the audience, that was art.
1: I can't think of a better note to end this on. Thank you so much for talking to me. Where could people find your, what is your Instagram?
2: Uh, my Instagram is shadow underscore tarot. Um, that's just mostly um, cutouts of tarot cards that I've been doing to make shadow puppets out of. Mm-hmm. Um, I also have a website that has more of my like full range of performance, which is a lengthofrope.com. Um, also, for work that Esther and I are specifically doing together, um, we are at AfraidNotCircus.com. I will let people figure out how best to spell that.
1: Wow. <laughs> Thank you so much. Here's a thought. In last week's episode, I recommended Bruce Chatwin's excellent book, The Songlines. In it, he references, almost as a throwaway, the anecdotal evidence in the fossil record that humanity had at one point, our own beast. That is, a creature that had specifically evolved to hunt terrestrial primates, our ancestors. There is even a sort of modern analog. A troop of baboons will sometimes seek shelter from the below freezing temperatures of southern Africa in caves. This being done in full knowledge that there are families of leopards living farther back in those same caves. The trade-off seems to be the simple math of the entire group dying of exposure, or perhaps one or two sick or old members being picked off by a leopard. The leopards tolerate the annoyance of these baboons on their doorstep because they serve as a convenient larder during colder weather. But back to the beast. The idea that a particular species of big cat, possibly one of the macrodontinae, I really hope i pronounced that right probably didn't the family which includes saber-toothed cats rose to prominence as predators around the same time our ancestors came down from the trees and their bones have been found in conjunction with those of our ancient kin i find the idea so seductive because of the possible connections with our own almost genetic memories and ideas of fear of the dark or the adversary it's almost as if we still remember a time when something was specifically targeting us and it has carried down into our modern ideas of the devil. Even the Bible refers to the devil as a roaring lion seeking that which he may devour. Perhaps we fear the dark because on some level we know what used to be in it. Getting back to those baboons and their seeming willingness to lose a few of their number to the monster at the back of the cave, I cannot help but wonder if such a symbiosis, 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 let's go with symbiosis, I cannot help but wonder if such a symbiosis might be the genesis of our own practices of ritual sacrifice. Now, this is entirely my own musing and not found in Chatwin's book, but what if? If you think about it, sacrificing a few of your own tribe to a devouring lion in that the rest might live in his dominion seems like a reasonable trade, and it's not a far jump to spin that out into a desire to appease a god with the death of a kinsman. All the better if you can borrow a kinsman from somebody else. I have no particular basis to back up this particular idea other than my own reasoning, but it makes a compelling thought if I do say so myself. I need more
3: coffee.
1: Hokey Fright! Have you heard about drunk parents? Stop me if you've heard this one before. Two actors who display fantastic on screen chemistry get cast in a project entirely dependent on said on screen chemistry. Things do not go as well as hoped. The two actors in question in this film are Alec Baldwin and Selma Hayek, who played an on screen couple in 30 Rock about a decade ago. For anyone interested, the plot involves a wealthy couple dropping their daughter off at college and then immediately falling onto hard times because they've been hiding from their daughter the fact that they are broke. Shenanigans ensue. Where this film works best is the quiet scenes between the two leads. Baldwin and Hayek do have a kind of delightful screen chemistry that comes from two seasoned performers chewing up the scenery together. It's just a shame there is so little for them to chew on. The film keeps drifting towards something better than it is, but it just feels so... safe? For a comedy that is supposedly trafficking in transgressive behavior from adults previously thought well healed, nothing... particularly over the top, happens. Sure, there are mistaken identities, kidnappings, and a surprising turn from wholesome comedian Jim Gaffigan as a registered sex offender who may actually just be a misunderstood weirdo, but none of that adds up to more than a few amusing scenes. Okay, okay, I know that sex offender thing stands out as odd, and actually it's a pretty good microcosm of why this film doesn't exactly work as a whole. See, Gaffigan's character arrives on the scene as the seeming solution to the newly destitute couple's money troubles. They have been watching the house of their neighbor who is away doing something spiritual in Nepal for a while. So they post an ad on Craigslist while drunk offering to rent out the house and Gaffigan shows up to rent it the next morning. He's excited to rent the place and pay six months rent in advance. Hours later, he knocks on their door with his parole officer and informs them that he is a registered sex offender. Hijinks ensue because they need the money more than they're afraid of having him rent the neighbor's house, but they can't have him in the neighbor's house, so they switch houses and put him in their house and stay in the neighbor's house. It's later revealed in a scene that is almost too emotionally impactful that he's a sex offender because of a horrible misunderstanding. While swimming at a beach one summer, he loses his trunks, thinks a shark is attacking him, and runs to shore, attempting to rescue some children along the way. Naturally, a naked Jim Gaffigan galumphing out of the surf holding your children is not a good look. So, he's a registered sex offender. Gaffigan's performance in the scene is so good, you actually find some pathos in this ridiculous story. The problem is, everything else the character does. He's always being creepy, perverse, and, well, just plain odd. It undercuts the emotional revelation of a dude who's had a hard life after a simple misunderstanding. I don't care if you want to have a creepy sex offender or a pervert or even a pedophile as a character in your film, but at least give the character some consistency. The emotional punch of the scene when he reveals his, for lack of a better term, origin story, is erased by the fact that at no other point does he really seem like a good guy. He's nice to the family's daughter when she shows up, but... We've only ever seen him acting creepy beforehand, so it's a worry that he's going to do something horrible. I could go on, but I think I've made my point. People can do surprising things, things that change our perceptions of them. Characters can change, grow, or devolve, but it needs a consistent direction. I'm curious if that is why this film was delayed from release for almost three years before getting put out on -on video-on-demand services. Perhaps they were going for a screwball comedy anchored by two Academy Award nominees and then ended up with an odd mishmash of real emotion and dark humor. It's an unwieldy film, to say the least. I'm not saying it's good, but at least now you've heard about it.
0: I got holes in both of my shoes My body feels like one giant bruise I don't got no time to snooze But hey, that's the life I choose I know I act like I got nothing to lose And can barely afford to buy my own booze But I've got a secret and it's the glue I'm uh, backed up by the very best crew I got friends around picking me up when I am down all these folks who keep it real even when it's hard to deal with the feels I got friends around listen to that sound of all the people who keep on trying to create beauty though we're still dying The gap to success I'm gonna cross Be a rolling stone, just gather no moss Separate the gold out from the dross I promise in the future I'm gonna floss Stay true to myself, be my own boss I know that the end is worth the cost All you can afford is the demitas Without a rhyming dictionary I'd be at a loss I got friends around Making me up when I am down All these folks who keep it real Even when it's hard to deal with the feels Those friends around
1: Listen to that
0: sound Of all the people who keep on trying To create beauty, though we're all dying keep it real even though it's hard to deal with the fears i got friends around listen to that sound of all the people who keep on trying to create beauty though we're all dying
1: Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of Strangely and Friends, the podcast. If you've got a question for me or you'd like to send me a hundred dollar bill or an odd piece of taxidermy you inherited from your weird uncle, you can send that stuff to Strangely, 1000 Harris Avenue, Bellingham, Washington, 98225, number 21. If you ask me a question in your letters or postcards, I will answer it on air on the podcast. And if you send me something weird, I'll talk about it on the podcast. Usually, Strangely and Friends is recorded at Sonic Suitcase Studios in fairly fine, fiscally responsible Fairhaven, Washington. Sonic Suitcase Studios is located in the Morgan Block Building, part of the People's Land Trust. This podcast is made possible by my incredible supporters on Patreon. Folks, like... The Patreon support is the lifeblood of my artistic existence right now. If I didn't have the dependable income of people supporting me via Patreon, I wouldn't be able to survive. It's crucial for artists to be able to have at least some dependable income, and things like Patreon make that possible. If you're not into supporting me, I would highly recommend you check out my friend Sarah Shea's patreon it's patreon.com slash sarah shea she makes awesome music and also does some fantasy writing which if you support her on patreon you can encourage her to do more of the latter so yeah check out check that out check out my patreon but also check out my friends i'm i'm trying to use this podcast platform as a way to sort of feature other artists that i respect and sarah is definitely tops so go check that out
2: So there is a string, and he walks into a bar, and he asks the bartender for a drink. And the bartender's like, I'm sorry, I don't serve string. And the string's like, wait, what dude, you, you're not gonna serve me? I just, I'd like a drink, please. And the bartender's like, no, I don't serve string, quit asking me. So the poor little string is just like, man, I'm parched. Can you at least give me a water while I sit here? And the bartender's like, no, get out of my bar. I don't want you here anymore. So the string leaves and goes out into the alley, rolls around a little bit, gets a little dirty, maybe ruffles himself up a little bit, and then he hobbles back into the bar and goes, excuse me, sir, I'd like a drink. The bartender looks at him a little quizzically and is like, wait a
0: minute,
2: are not you that string that was in here just a few minutes ago? The string perks himself up a little bit and goes, no, sir, I'm afraid not.
1: Strangely and Friends, the podcast is a Herringbone Society production.